for sticking around. Hey. And I get my notes out. <laughs> well, as you may know, my name's Harold. I host a show called Tunes Tunes Podcast here at the Tower Theater. Uh, excited to have the opportunity to screen some of our favorite movies. Uh, this one was definitely a trip. Uh, I know it was Alex's first time to see it, right, Alex? You requested that I not watch yeah, it. Yeah, she was like, should so I watch I this? I was like, like no, yeah. this will be a good... <laughs> This would be a good like reaction to, for you to see it the first time and then talk yeah. about it right after. For real. So, but yeah, um, thanks for sticking around. We'll just go down the down the line here, and I'll let these guys introduce themselves, and we'll you know talk about some of our favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, I'm uh, Daniel Bokemper. I help contribute to the uh, Cinematropolis along with Alex and of course Caleb filming us right now, and <laughs> and uh, as well as World Literature Today. Uh, in the Oklahoma Gazette. I do stuff with Harold as well on Tunes and Tunes. My name is Alexandra Bohannon. I am on thecinematropolis.com as well. I work um, primarily doing film scores, uh, podcasting work um, on our podcast, The Cinematic Schematic. I'm Brett Grimes. I'm with Robot House Creative. Uh, we are a three-man creative branding shop here in OKC. Um, we've done some fun stuff with Harold here at the Tower before, and we're glad to be back. Beautiful Definitely, poster, yeah. by Thanks the way. Thanks for coming through. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, this was a movie, and uh, Brett can kind of attest to this, and Daniel, I think, were two of the people that I had uh, spoken to about wanting to show this, specifically these two, because they're big fans of Satoshi Kon's work. Um, I was really wrestling with whether or not to show this just because of some of the content and some of the things going on right now, like just the way that, you know, the climate is politically and everything. And then just with a lot of, you know, I didn't know if it would be super appropriate to show it. Like, I was really wrestling with whether or not to show this and ended up, uh, you know, bouncing it off of these guys and we ended up showing it. And I'm really glad that we were able to bring YWCA out and have them talk about it a little bit and give a little forward to the film and everything. So that was really cool. And so... um I try not to, you know, get up on a soapbox too, soapbox too much because everybody does that. You can't get a, you can't look on social media or anywhere like that without hearing people talk about how how things are right now. But I think, just for me personally, um, I think it's important for us to, you know, talk about the these things and the knowledge that they're going on. And so uh, that's the that's the somber intro. So uh, we'll get into the fun stuff now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think now more than ever, a film like this is important, something that can handle such sensitive subject matter in um, just, just a really respectful way. Mm -hmm. It's you know a fine piece of art at the same time as it's making a really important social commentary. Yeah, it's not just like a doing it for the sake of doing it. You know, it's saying this is a thing that happens and it's so tough to watch that too with her putting on the facade of, oh, I'm an actress and I have to do this and then seeing how conflicted she was about it later, it's like, oh, man, like, it made my stomach churn just watching it now and just thinking about, like, you know, what the gravitas of it, like, in the moment. It's like, oh, gosh. Yeah, for 1998, it definitely wasn't a superficial approach to it, which I think is very forgiving, especially with a lot of both contemporary cinema then, but even now, you know, there's nothing in it that's, it's not to say it's easy to watch, but it's approached with a sense of tact, I think, from Satoshi Kon, uh, quite a bit ahead of his time, uh, but but also with brevity. 
And I think that's kind of rare when a lot of films deal with this. It tends to get into the, the unnecessary and to what end. But I, I think he, he is very meticulous in, in what he's trying to put forth and, and what issues he's trying to address. Uh, again, without being needless or superficial, it's not, you know, I like Game of Thrones, but there's a lot of problematic yeah. parts of that that show, I agree. Um, unfortunately. So, yeah, um, one of my uh, it's just kind of weird to say a common talking point if you're like my pals or like on a podcast with me is that um, rape and sexual assault isn't just a shortcut. It shouldn't be just a shortcut in your literary thing to say this person is bad, and that's like an easy way for a lot of medium. Medium from TV to comic books to Dungeons and Dragons, like everyone has like these tropes where it's like, oh, what's a really easy way to show this person's a bad guy? Have them sexually assault someone. And that's not great. That's terrible. So uh, that's hack awful writing, A. And B, totally negates like the gravity of what sexual assault and rape is. And one reason I particularly like this film, even if that sequence is very uh, challenging watch. I appreciate that we get that sequence of her dealing with the aftermath emotionally, which keys you into the fact that this isn't just done for shock and uh, this kind of nasty gratification uh, voyeurism thing. This is done with like, we know what we just did and this is a person in a narrative dealing with the aftermath, even if it was, quote, fictionalized, unquote. I mean, she still was, I mean, she still basically had that same thing happen, you know, to her emotionally. I mean, she's still going to have those memories of that sequence and uh, for the rest of her life, even if, you know, she was, quote, acting, she's an actress and everything. So um, I appreciated that, that moment because um, many sexual assault victims will... I mean, that's a thing. Yeah. So. Well, it's just interesting, too, because just the way that the movie is put together, you see, and it's from the beginning, you see it's flashing from her in the spotlight and being in that persona to her and just her everyday life. And so you're kind of set up from the beginning to be like, okay, the line's kind of blurred here. And, you know, we, we've talked about Satoshi Kon before, especially on the podcast. Anyone, anytime I have anyone on, I love talking about him. Um, but that's just like, that's his M.O., you know what I mean? Like, he lives in that pocket of, this is like an area, like, of the human psyche. Like, I want to examine that and really get into, like, the reasoning behind why people do things or why people are in certain situations. So I'm not super, like, I've seen this and I've seen some of Paranoia Agent, but I thought that'd be a good jumping off point was, you know, what's kind of like your experience level with Satoshi Kon's work? Um, if you're well-versed, how does Perfect Blue parallel with his other work? And then uh, I think we see it throughout, but in your opinion, uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of influence in, in works um, after that have come after this. So where do you kind of see that? I know I'm kind of throwing like three questions at you at once, but I think it's a good jumping off point, so it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I well... I knew of Satoshi Kon originally through Paranoia Agent. I think that's, if we have a glimpse of Satoshi Kon, it's probably through that series, uh, which is his only television series, really. I think he's worked on other things, but 
Um, and that was through Adult Swim. It wasn't until maybe the last three years that I actually really became a fan of his his film, which is also, um, he passed away in 2010, so it's, it's a little after the fact. Uh, and that's odd. I don't know who to blame for that necessarily, if it's Madhouse for, for lack of syndication or what, but it seems like a lot of his work comes back kind of post-mortem. Um, so I'm pretty well familiar with with most of everything he's done. Millennium Actress, uh, Perfect Blue, of course, Tokyo Godfathers, and Paprika being his, his four primary films. Um, this film, as far as it parallels, I mean, there is one consistent theme, and, and a lot of critics will, will allude to this, and I think it's a consistent theme or, or maybe a subject matter with Satoshi Kon is the, the, the dichotomy or the multiplicity of the self. So in, uh, I think it was the, oh, the, the Washington Post's obituary on Satoshi Kon. I mean, he constructs what he calls multiple realities, uh, but there's this different self we portray, and we see that. And as Harold brought up at the very start of the film, we see, you know, the, the pop idol, we see the, the career self of, of Mima, and then we see the very real, the very, you know, normal, I, I don't want to say human side of her, that isn't correct, but but the side that isn't a pop idol, the side that that is, you know, who, who Mima ultimately is. Um, and you see very long shots. There's a lot of attention to detail within his, you know, how he constructs her apartment, things of that nature. And that's what he's concerned with, is, is that we are always a, somewhat of a, we're a reflection of ourselves, but we're also Again, we're multiple selves, and and that is seen, of course, through Millennium Actress. I think is is one of the most closest parallels, probably to Perfect Blue. But in all of his films, you're going to see some notion of that idea uh, played out, and I think it's really interesting. You see it influenced. Um, I think probably the most direct for like a Western filmmaker might be Darren Aronofsky, um, and he's gone on record to to cite you know, inspiration for both Requiem for a Dream and parts as Perfect Blue, but also Black Swan. And then someone like Nicholas Winding Refn uh, for uh, The Neon Demon. And then probably maybe more recently would be the, the most recent season of BoJack Horseman actually has, I think it's 10th episode or 11th episode, I believe. 10th, is that it? Yeah, it has a basically a fever dream episode that is is not, you know, identical to Perfect Blue, but very you know, very apparent in its influence, I suppose. That's insane, because, like, uh, Katie Garrison is the girl that does all my graphics for my podcast. Mm -hmm. I've never watched BoJack Horseman. Like, I don't have anything. It's I just it's just something I haven't checked out. There's a lot of stuff. But she <laughs> yeah. texts me, and she said, have, I don't know if you watched the show, but she's a she doesn't watch anime at all, but she loves Perfect Blue. Like, it's so crazy. Yeah. But she texts me, and she said, I'm watching the show BoJack Horseman, this episode specifically, the one that you just said. Mm -hmm. Man, it really reminds me of Perfect Blue, and I was like, what? Like, that's so insane. Or Satoshi Kon, I guess I should say. Like, I was like, that's insane. And so it's funny to hear it again. I'm like, man, I really need to go watch that then, I guess. Check yeah. it out. Um, so my experience with Satoshi Kon is um, I've seen this film. I haven't seen Paranoia Agent or... Um, actress but I have seen Paprika and so the through line for me across both of these films is the um, kind of the nebulousness of reality what is real what is kind of dreamlike or uh, kind of like that haunting um, influence upon you what did what is the word the psych the psychiatrist used uh, to 
be like, oh yeah, you know, you can't have a thing. Uh, can't remember the word. An illusion kill you. Thank you, audience. Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, you can't have an illusion kill you. So yeah, so that kind of illusory um, grasp on reality and the fact that like slowly as the movie ratchets on, it blurs. Yeah, the Neon Demon. Yeah, shit. Yeah, that movie. <laughs> that movie really takes a, a hard. It, I mean, it, that one can also be just as challenging of a watch for sure. Um, uh, but yeah, it has a lot of that kind of mad fever pitch insanity to it. Um, but yeah, I, I think he, obviously the that famous scene, I've only seen Black Swan like once or twice, but like that scene with all the portraits in the bedroom and Black Swan, I mean, obviously ripped from the um, portraits, but I think Perfect Blue does it just so much better yeah, in my opinion, because no. it just like, oh, it, it gets the gravitas about why that's a moment, you know, that's like the, the weight behind it. Yeah, too. and I think that's what's lost in yeah. what Cohn does better than maybe both both Refn and Aronofsky in those two examples are. Um, he, I mean, he understands there is a, their trauma has an impact. Yeah. And the victim is not going to be just a vehicle for, as you put it earlier, Alex, uh, the villain for an antagonist to basically mm -hmm. be more, I guess, emphasized or eliminated as a, a bad person. Um, it's, it's again, the victim isn't the vehicle. It's not a means to an end. The victim is the, the subject, and we're going to approach that in a, in a meaningful way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and um, I came to Satoshi Kone probably nine years ago. Uh, Paprika was the first film I saw and just completely fell in love, and it's not super surprising because... Um, growing up, one of my favorite directors was Darren Aronofsky. I worked at Hollywood Video when I was 15, and I remember checking out Pi and then eventually buying it on DVD with one of those like cardboard fold-over covers, you know, and watching it over and over and really getting into Requiem for a Dream. And The Fountain is one of my favorite movies to this day. Obviously, this is not about Aronofsky, but there's a lot of parallels, right? And you can see um, Cone was a big-time inspiration for him. Um, I think something that ties all of Cone's work together, I've seen everything but Millennium Actress now, I should say. Uh, something that ties it all together is really just his focus on people, I think, and what makes them tick. And I think that's something that makes him pretty unique for a guy who you know, produced anime, is that it's not about some giant overarching plot or world building or fantasy. It's just about people. And a lot of his stuff doesn't have to be animated. But I think he pulls off some really cool tricks with it. Um, but yeah, so just kind of what, what makes people tick, and especially, I think, what people are afraid of, and are we greater than the sum of our fears? So, like, in this movie, you know, you have a lot of stuff with Mima going, and, and she's, she's practicing her lines, and she's trying to make sure she's getting everything right, and she finally gets in the spotlight, and she, like, sees everyone else talking, and, like, no one's paying attention to her anymore. So she's lost her audience now. And then you see her later in the rape scene, almost envisioning what it would be like to have all these crowds of dudes who are usually at her show, like we see in the beginning. Now they are having their, their fantasies, or what she assumes their fantasies are with her, right? So she's having to confront kind of all her fears and about who she is. And I think you see a lot of that um, paranoia agent. If you guys ever get a chance to check that out, if you liked this, it's really hard to track down. I don't even think you can buy a complete series of it or anything. I think there's like one 
Blu-ray, but it's like very limited release. I think I saw some printing of it on Amazon that was like two hundred dollars. Jesus. Like, yeah, very pretty inaccessible. It's it's a very limited printing. Gotta cop that bootleg if you can. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely <laughs> gotta cop that bootleg. That's two hundred two hundred dollars. Come on, Jesus. Um, but yeah, Paranoia Agent deals with that same idea of our fears and having to confront them in, in many different ways. And you get to experience that through at least seven or more characters. I don't remember how many main characters there are through, throughout the series, but you kind of get to see that theme played throughout. Yeah. And and, it, it, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to answer the last part of your, your multi-tiered oh, yeah. question here. God. Um, sorry, y'all. You know, we, did, we didn't talk about uh, <laughs> David Fincher yet, and I don't think he is probably that influenced by Satoshi Kon, I really don't know. But I see some interesting parallels and overlaps, especially within delving within the human psyche. Um, but something, Alex, I think you might dig this. This is probably my fourth or fifth time to see Perfect Blue. And this is the first time I ever caught when that fax is coming through at the beginning. It starts to make you know this repetitive fax noise, yeah, which like slowly cadence. transitions right into the score. Oh yeah, and that reminds me of Gone Girl when you have that Trent Reznor, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score, and it has this like pumping beat, and then it slowly turns into a guy like polishing a floor in one of the scenes. So just that transition and and use of music and sound and more than just the obvious film score ways is pretty cool. So I can see some parallels between Fincher and Cohen there. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the scenes, and I don't know if I've just never really thought about this, or if it's just after watching it this time, is the scene of Mima in, in the uh, bathtub, and I'm like, is that from Re Requiem for a Dream? I was like, I pretty, I think, I, f I feel like I remember Jennifer Connelly being in that same yeah, almost type of scene. almost verbatim. I don't know if deliberately, but they're very similar. You can find it on YouTube, almost like a direct. Yeah, he he bought the rights for that. To use oh, that he did, scene. and he really? bought them for like. Adam was like $56,000 the rights for Perfect Blue to use that It was scene. only three years what? later, too, wasn't it? That's awesome. I did Crazy. not know that. One year later? That's right. That's insane. Um, you know, just, you know, we're, we're all kind of touching on, like, the next thing I wanted to talk about, and it's just from the nature of his work. But uh, in regards to identity... Like, what picture does Cohn's narrative paint in terms of self-actualization or maybe ego or just Mima as, like, a person? You kind of see it throughout the film that it's it's built built on throughout the film. Um, do you think it just, I mean, to me, it's just, like, a, a master class in, in, you know, examining the psyche or, like, what makes humans tick. Um, I don't know what it is that he does so well, but... That's the that's one of the things that sticks out to me, and I wanted to get your guys' take on it. Yeah, there was definitely a cultural incubator that that helped that quite a bit. I mean, I I don't want to say idolization is is drastically different, or, the, or excuse me, the the like pop idol industry is drastically different in America, but I think it's a little less focused, and thus it doesn't create the same, you know, the same uh, what's the word engine, I guess, that we see for for. Um, something like infatuation or obsession. It does, but it's it's a little bit distant. But to to hearken more to the the idea of identity and self actualization, uh, Cohen himself actually made a, a pretty. I don't know if he said it on Perfect Blue, but it's a quote from <laughs> Cohen that's. I'm paraphrasing, but it's the you you think is inside of you isn't the the you that's really you essentially, or I guess to put it more bluntly, the you that you are 
projecting or putting out there is might not be an accurate reflection of, of who you really are. And that's not to say that Mima is, is evading that. I think she actually knows who she is and she knows what, um, you know, what, what is going to feel, you know, push her closer, I guess, towards self-actualization and what feels right to her. But there's this innumerable influence, well, I guess there, you can count them probably, but uh, I'm gonna say there's numerous influences <laughs> that are on her, be it the industry, be it her agents, be it, you know, she wants to to pursue this, uh, you know, seasoned actor and, and, and emulate them in a way because they seem so smooth. And um, she's always trying to, she, throughout this film, she kind of tries to grasp at what, what is that? What's going to make her feel good about what she's doing? Because clearly, you know the the scene she performs and the and the photography those those aren't necessarily um, things that she's feeling ultimately empowered by at the end. But but I think rather there is this you know there is this this pressure that this might be what she is. But I think near the end of the film, as we see when she's finally seeing what you know Rumi is the one who's adopted this the part that she previously refers to as buried deep in her heart the 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 pop idol the naivety. Um, when I was speaking with Jackie actually about the film, the, the, the virginal pop idol version of Mima versus the, the, you know, the more wise and clearly the, that performer, at least initially in her career is far more sexualized and that, that abrupt and jarring shift into that mode. It, it does but throw her through a loop, but it also throws everyone around her through a loop. And I think they try to, in a way, compound her, you know, I don't know if she's actually like, I always have trouble. I think there is a form of a psychotic, break or psychosis in the film, but I also think it's like, obviously it's compounded far more severely by, by some of the people around her, especially Rumi. And I think near the end of the film when, you know, she does look at her rear view mirror and she sees, you know, she agrees that, yes, you're Mima or this is Mima, I am, like that is her moment, I think, of self-actualization, knowing who she is and actually, I think, owning that and finding her agency in lieu of an agent. I feel like this film is a, a criticism of agents a little bit. Like, I don't... <laughs> I, yeah. I wonder how useful they are in, in retrospect. <laughs> the, the, uh, I did get his the, hands almost blown off, and he was still I know. Her out. He I was mean, fine, yeah. He, uh, the, the, you know, watching it now, I just realized, like, how in, how, you can't even really keep up with it at sometimes. You're like, is this, no. it's like Inception. It's like, are they awake? Like is this is this a hallucination? Like what's going on? Is this part of like the scene? Because there's there's the part where she's uh, at the end when she's getting uh, you know the the creepy guy. What was his name again? Me mania. Uh, mania or Mamania. He's like trying to assault her, and then like it's everyone's like, oh great job, and they're clapping. There's an audience, and you're like, what what's going on? Like yeah. this is insane. Yeah, you do not know. There when I first saw this film, I could not tell when they were filming the television. Like it's it's so interesting. How how well this film is is edited, like so so far beyond a lot of what was coming out at the time, and ultimately what influenced I think Fincher, uh, Nolan, obviously I think Paprika has a pretty heavy influence on on Inception. Um, it, it, it's so crazy how he can he can do that, and and I don't know I don't know of another film, especially like an animated film uh, or a horror film for that matter. I think this is thriller horror. Um, that that even comes close to that, just that fluidity of reality that uh, Alex was elaborating on earlier. One thing I think is kind of an interesting analog is that while we don't have like the pop idol formal structure here, I think the closest thing we have is kind of that Disney pop stars machine 
you know, because, I mean, we had Britney Spears, you know, Timberlake, Hannah Montana, I mean, Miley Cyrus, and so they turned out, and then to really hard differentiate themselves and then trying to their what they thought or they they meaning their agent themselves all of these forces like like Mima were trying to differentiate from the that persona they go into hard you know like I'm you know sexualization and all this stuff like provocative imagery and their music videos and things like that and then usually they kind of come back like the, the pendulums kind of swings more to the middle, like when Cyrus came kind of back into that middle where she's now kind of doing country and, you know, she's kind of chilled out, I guess, a little bit. But I think it, for it, there is a certain amount of, like, to break out and kind of try on these other identities. Now, granted, you know, Mima, it didn't look like she was having a great time trying on all those identities. And I don't think, and a lot of trauma was associated within that. But I think some of that, um, you know, when you're a young person trying to figure out who you are, you're, you're kind of like, I mean, it's like a different shirt, different shoes, just figuring out who you are. Um, and it kind of like trying it on, seeing if it fits, if it works, and if it kind of, again, matches who the person you feel like inside on the outside. And uh, and I think by that rearview mirror scene, you know, she's kind of got more of a handle. I'm not saying anyone ever actually figures it out, um, but she's got more of a handle on who real Mima is. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's really a shame that Satoshi Kone isn't still around because I'd I know. love to see what he has to say about social media. Yeah. Oh, I and know. The fact that we kind of all are our own pop idols now and everyone mm. is curating their own feeds and channels and you know, they're curating their own image and putting it out there and then having to battle that, you know, is this me feeling? I, I think you could you could do a lot with that. Yeah. He's pretty close though, like on the in the movie, he it's uh, when Rumi's explaining the computer, whatever, explaining the computer, explaining uh, yeah the internet. Uh, she's like, oh, it's like networking online, and I'm like, dang, like that's that's pretty like that's pretty spot on, man. Uh, besides it being like that, the Mac that's the size of the room, but that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like a dot matrix printer hooked up to that bad boy. <laughs> I just loved it. I mean, it, I ha was extremely gratified by the fax machine. I was like, this is a cool moment with a cool sound cue, but that is great also. <laughs> I was expecting, like, the whole time you expect her pager to go off or something. Right, like. right. <laughs> I kind of want someone. Was this the wire? <laughs> I, I want to see a reaction from someone who's about 18 right now. Oh, Watch yeah. that movie and be like, what is happening? Oh, it's printing an email there. I am also, also was really intrigued by the fact that it's like, you know, we all watch a lot of anime for the most part, so you always see, like, whenever they have a laptop, they usually, like, draw a pineapple on the back of it to pretend to be an apple. Like, no, it said, like, Macintosh I, everywhere. Yeah. Like, in and the it, foreground, it was like, oh. Yeah, and it actually, I don't know if you guys remember using that browser. It was, like, the Navigator. That was, like, the Netscape. Netscape, yeah, it was, like, the Netscape logo. I'm like, oh, my God, wow. Netscape. <laughs> I feel like I remember hearing about that. <laughs> oh yeah, you I'm never use it yourself. Kidding, Brett. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I read about that in a history book, I think. Uh, so we're. It's funny because like just our natural flow of the discussion, like getting into the next question I want to ask naturally. But, Good. Um, so the way that Cohn constructs her character throughout and adds onto it and as reveals more aspects of her character, 
um, it is so interesting and, you know, I keep saying it's like a master class, but it just is it's incredible. Like, and you feel like you empathize with her because especially the way the movie's put together, you're like, is this real? Is this, you know, what, what's going on? Is this the show or is this her? And so you're able to empathize with her, but just him building that narrative is so interesting. But I wanted to talk about, um, you know, his portrayal, not only of her, but of women uh, in any of his media. Uh, you know, is it, in this movie, you have two very prominent female characters towards, you know, towards the end, we find out about Rumi, and it's insane. Like, when you first watch it, that blew my what mind. What a twist. Holy and I was like, shit. what? And she's in the, in the dress. I was like, uh-oh, we got a problem. <laughs> I was like, something's about to pop off here. But it's pretty <laughs> yeah, insane. And it's like, right off. <laughs> I was shocked. Like, the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, like, this is amazing. But, you know, what... You know, what do you say to that? Like his kind of like his portrayal. It reminds me almost of like Miyazaki, how he always has like these very prominent female characters, and like that's what the narrative is built around. Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, I guess the precedent for for portrayals of women in anime in most media, unfortunately, the bar is pretty low. Um, so it, I guess maybe it wouldn't be in that difficult for Cone to exceed it, but just he, step right over it. Yeah, yeah, it's not a much yep. of a barrier at all, uh, <laughs> if an obstruction. Uh, but it, I don't know, it, it, I think it's really important. He doesn't, I mean, he does sexualize characters. That's not, I mean, obviously he does. But he also, again, he doesn't, he, in the most part, even if the women are, are victims in a lot of his work, they aren't their their trauma is not something that's taken lightly. I don't. I can't think of a single cone work where, where trauma for any character, but especially and commonly women, it's not taken with this, with the meaning I think that it, that it should be with the frame that that makes it in, impactful and actually makes it a bit didactic as well. Um, he also doesn't. His characters seem just very real to me. I guess in the way that they're animated and the way that their faces are. Betrayed, and the way that they they aren't these caricatures in a lot of the ways that I think animation, Western and Eastern, but also um, you know even live action kind of make these these glorified images. They show them as real people. Um, Paprika is a pretty good example of that because you have a, a a person who is a more you know both normalized and then assuming also this this dream persona in the form of Paprika that's that's drastically different. From who she is, and and I, d I don't know. I think he he is very concerned with making real people, people that that have a weight, and and a lot of it does go down to to how they're animated, how they're portrayed, and and how they look. But but I don't think he, you know, I'm always hesitant when when a a, a male filmmaker is is telling a narrative concerned with a with a woman because I wonder how you know you think of like. I was watching uh, John Carpenter's The Original Halloween kind of recently, and, and mm -hmm. that was uh, in preparation for the new one. And while he does empower women to some extent, there's so much that's just like... Titties. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Word. Not, not that Cone doesn't have that either, but it's, you know, he doesn't use it where it's like something like, I, I don't see anyone, you know, it's not it's not sexualized, I guess. It's, it's like the horny teenager thing. Right, like The 80s yeah, trope of like horror movies. Yeah, I'd like to think that no one was watching this film and like actually feeling... You know, thinking it was like some kind of pornography. Like it seems pretty, you know. I don't know. It it, it frames it in a way that you're gonna feel, I don't know, not 
this sounds this is so weird. I put myself in a weird spot. Yeah, it's it, okay. You, I it's can right. I can help save you. Okay. Right. So oh, thank you. One, <laughs> <laughs> um one thing I find interesting, particularly about how that the uh, assault sequence is structured is the male actor who's her acting yeah. partner yeah. apologizes before. And I know that there's a lot of um, stuff. I, uh, Rachel, um, sorry, Rachel Gyllenhaal. No, it's not. Maggie, okay. Maggie Gyllenhaal. What, Rachel? What? Okay. Maggie Gyllenhaal. What? Okay, cool. Anyway, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal on The Deuce has like a really interesting um interview on Fresh Air about how she did all those sex sequences on the deuce. Um, and it's really interesting to hear, go listen to that interview because it's really fascinating, especially considering, you know, she is bearing a lot of body in that series and how whenever her character is actually assaulted versus her having like, you know, um, you know consensual sex with a willing partner or like lovemaking, how all of those are like shot and structured differently. Uh, it's really interesting. And I think that, in a way, the actor in that sequence is like a stand-in for Cohen himself. He's like, I'm going to do something, and I have to show this to you, and I'm sorry, but I'm doing it anyway because that's what this entails. Yeah. And it's it's really, I mean, it's kind of a strange place to be in since it is kind of that meta-narrative of it not being in the quote literal real, even if it has like a traumatic effect upon our protagonist. Um, so there, yeah, it's it's something else, especially with that sequence. I have no idea what your original question was. This is perfect. Great. <laughs> perfect blue. All right. Well. Azul perfecto. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just to follow up with both of those, um, I think two things that lend to the humanization you're kind of talking about, Daniel. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is Cone studied under Otomo, who did Akira. Um, okay. And so I think that really lends to him drawing characters that don't look like traditional anime, right? Yeah. Like, they, even there's a scene that kind of pokes fun at that look, you know, where it actually shows oh, the yeah. anime. The girls yeah, the super the eyes shoujo are huge. eyes. I, I was just thinking. Yeah, that, yeah. that was great. Yeah. And even like the Super Sentai stuff at the beginning, like the, the movie starts with some Power Rangers-esque dudes on stage. Yeah. You know, so you can tell he's very aware that his style is different and standing out from the rest of, I think, what's happening in Japan. Um, and something else that I think really helps his characters feel real is the fact that you're getting everything from, where you're getting almost everything from Mima's perspective. Mm -hmm. I think there's some times where you're a little third person with Mimania uh, just kind of seeing what's happening around him or maybe how he's even interpreting some things. But for the most part, it's all from what Mima is thinking. And I think that's what makes it so trippy. And you can't really trust it because she's almost kind of having a psychotic break. And so right. she's a little bit of an unreliable narrator there. But I think it's something that makes it relatable. Well, I think, uh, and I have to give a lot of credit to Daniel for helping me uh, kind of put together like the discussion points for this. But These are hard questions, I, man. I know. I had to think about these. Harold did <laughs> well, see these, these are, out ahead yeah, of time. Daniel does a great so job. So glad this isn't recorded. I'm <laughs> going to be published. <laughs> no. um, so one of the uh, the things that you realize when watching the movie, but I didn't necessarily stop and think of, was like the aspects of everyday life that are included, and how those in turn become some of like the more disturbing parts of the movie when you think about her being watched in those moments. Because it's like it's something like just like 
it makes your skin crawl to think about being watched in a moment that you don't think that you're not aware, like you're, you're most vulnerable. And so when we see like the, the diary portions where it's like, I get the milk with the cow and this fish food, I'm like, what? Like, that's insane. It's something like of like, just like the empathy, you know, you're like, oh man, like this would be so cringy if this happened to me. So in a way, like those parts are like the more, the more like scary parts of it because of like the reality of it. And so that was one of the points um, that Daniel had, we, me and him had discussed was, you know, what aspects of everyday life does Cohen wield into something terrifying? And how is the perfect, how is the horror and terror of Perfect Blue effective? Yeah, and I think Brett was actually getting to this a little bit earlier. He, you know, it's it's a shame that Cohen passed in 2010 because what would he do with what we have now, the, the, the social media and the way we curate our own experiences. It's weird that Perfect Blue is kind of a film that's grown more topical with time in a lot of ways. And one of that is with what, what, what terror and peril maybe, maybe technology and accessibility can bring. I think it gets at the, the idea of social media before it really was, was deemed what it is now. And also, I don't think I've ever been freaked out by a fax, but that film, like, really, geez, like, <laughs> yeah, it's so, <laughs> that, like, metallic, as you were, you were mentioning, it was akin to a, a uh, Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor uh, score. It's just this, like, weird cybernetic, and then, you know, you see her pan out, and, and it's like she can't even escape her, her own home, and it, it reminds me of another, um, uh, a manga artist, I don't know, they're basically contemporaries, but they, uh, Junji Ito, who is very concerned with the distortion of, of reality and the distortion of the everyday objects in this kind of ineffable way. I think... Is that what we talked about? The the people in the cave? Or like yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, the yeah. enigma of uh, something That's false. insane. Yeah. Yeah, we need yeah. to talk about that later because people need to know about that because that's yeah. insane. Sorry to interrupt. No, you're <laughs> fine. No, that's, uh, that is a very, um, you know, it, it, very close uh, parallel yeah. to those. I'd say the the lasting anxiety and unease from watching this film is very similar to read, reading that Jinji Ito story about this hole is made for me because that it on yeah. paper it sounds ridiculous and like why is this scary but then you realize it cuts the core of something so real vulnerable and visceral that like it just kind of breaks you a little and it's not even something like uh su- it's not even super graphic some of he can get pretty pretty graphic and right. very delightfully scary terrifying ways and but this is like why is this so scary but it is terrifying uh yeah and then you know harold you were talking about having someone follow you and, and know where you're going and the stuff you're buying and that isn't quite as scary anymore to me because people are checking in everywhere That's they true. go and that is true, liking yeah. all the products that they buy and then posting about them online and we just give so much of that information away now that it's kind of a flip in a way. Uh, but I think the scariest parts of this movie are the simple things like waking up in your room but it's not your room. Yeah. Right? Or yeah. like you, th- you rolled up this poster and put it away and you wake up and it's back on your wall or like yeah. little things, you know, just... Be so unsettling. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like this one time. I have no idea why this happened to me in real life, but I received a package of like an article of clothing that I didn't order from a website I've never heard of. 
addressed to me with my first and last name and my full address on it. And yeah, so that you got to move, leave the country. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously <laughs> burn my house down. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> that's the kind of weird like that. It feels like you have been like violated in a very different kind of way. Um, then it's just, there's some kind of bubble you expect around your life and your stuff and your address and your date of birth and all this stuff. And then like, if someone can just hand you all this and say, yeah, I guess he's not as secure anymore. It's just like, Oh, ugh. yeah. And the intimacy that comes with that. I think of the exactly. scene where she hears her recording of herself practicing her lines. Oh the- God. Yeah. yeah. And it's just like, hearing that over and over and and it was just an appropriate line to you know excuse me who are you but but also like you know somebody had to be that close to her and and to not know um ultimately who that was and that's the question right like who are you like she's talking to herself yeah that's insane yeah i mean information is a weapon and we see that with like (laughs) ddosing and you know anyone can be anyone they want on twitter people could don't do this copy my entire Twitter and like all my shit and then be me. They want it on Twitter. It's not hard, you know, but it, and it's like scary that they can do that. It's just there. Well, it's just scary. Yeah. I think if, if he was still here, it would just be like a field day for him. Cause like we are more connected now than any time in human history. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's to the point where it's scary, you know, like I see new things come out every day and people like, this is awesome and convenient. And I'm like, dude, like, you're giving all your agency away. Like, that's just, it, to me, it's almost like in a perverted way. Like, you're just like, there's no privacy. Like, ooh. And I do it too, but then you do feel like you still want that bubble, right? True. Like, you do still want I didn't. I didn't read my iTunes <laughs> terms and conditions. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You, you always got, accept you got the, the, cl- the <laughs> you know, every website. Can we use cookies if you want to navigate? Oh, okay. You know, yeah. so. And they trick you by making it sound like something nice. Cookies. Sure. I like those. <laughs> uh, something that Caleb Masters does in, in his show is uh, uh, take a suggestion for something when, we, you know, uh, when you're talking about a specific thing. What's something else you could watch that's similar to that? And uh, with like a suggestion. So with that in mind, after watching this, a suggestion for something, and I don't know if it's just top of mind for me, it's... And I don't know if it's really a show that I want to stick with. I do want to watch at least the first season and then do an episode about it just to kind of dissect. But uh, Goblin Slayer, I don't know if anybody's watching that or has heard of that. Um, I watched the first two episodes and was, like, very uneasy in the first ten minutes because, there's yeah, it's very graphic. And I'm like, Ugh, like, it's basically like a D&D anime. And so I was like, okay, I'm on board with this. Like, I will check this out. And it's literally within the first 10 minutes, you're like, oh, like, I don't know if I'm okay with this. But with it tackling the kind of thing that things it does, like sexual assault, it's like, well, maybe I want to at least stick with it through the first season and, you know, kind of pick it apart and see, like, why is it doing that? Is it doing it just for, like, the, the thing we're talking about, like, the hack thing of this is just a means to an end of, like, oh, goblins are bad. Like, well, no shit, like... <laughs> Yeah, Isn't that what it's been getting? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Criticism super, for it. I mean, that's just kind of like a trope pervasive of like all D&D and fantasy that like yeah. goblins are like kind of unfortunately rapey people race. Beans, like, yeah. yeah. Like, but it's just like, to me, it's to the point where it's like, okay, like I think we could have got that across without being so yeah. 
ridiculous with this because it's it's pretty intense. So I think I'm going to stick with it and just see with it through the first season. I don't know if it's necessarily me co-signing as like, hey, check this out. But that this is something that's just topical that comes to mind when I think about it just because of how recently I watched it. Ringing endorsement. Yeah. <laughs> I'm watching this know, thing. Maybe. That's like the most non-suggestion like, like co-sign of all time. A thing happened. That's all I've actually said. Oh, I, uh, I guess because it's it's kind of close to Halloween and, and maybe focusing on horror films a little bit, I think a film that, you know, not necessarily influenced by Cone, but one that might come close would be into the idea, especially of being... Harold's going away. And the, no, <laughs> the idea of... Uh, she's not going to stay for my recommendation at all. We just leave. The uh, Michael uh, Hanukkah's cachet, which is a lot about the the... Laws of the really the violation of privacy, which which Perfect Blue plays on. Um, what was know, it again? Uh, Cachet by Michael Haneke. Um He did a more. I think was was probably his most famous film. Several others though as well. Um, but again, it's it's about a family that is being um, unbeknownst to them monitored. Well, beknownst to them, but like deliberately, like somebody starts leaving tapes of them being recorded on their their uh, like front lawn or, or their porch or something and it continues to get more and more severe and escalate from there it's not like a i guess a scary film in the sense that you're going to see a lot of terrifying images or people you know you know scenes of brutality but you do see something that's progressively more and more unsettling until it's a crescendo so yeah when is that from like when was it made uh 2005 or six okay I would say in this cadre of recommendations to do Lynch's Mulholland Drive because I think yeah. the parallel here is, well, it's basically just a parallel. Um, yeah, because, like, I mean, you got the ideas of duality of the self and then you have, you know, these all these personas and then, you know, they got, when you get that twist, it's like I think that reveal is fairly, fairly apt in comparison to what transpires in this film as well. So... Um, yeah, definitely. Even to like the point where uh, I I don't I haven't seen the sub, um, but I, so I've only seen this dub, and I don't know if it's kind of like that Lynch, Lynchian intentionality of like the s slightly stilted performances, especially with like the pop idol stuff. Um, but that to me, intentional or not, by the whoever produced the 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 dub uh, kind of rings similar to how Mulholland plays a little bit and how Lynch just directs actors is like he loves those stilted performances to kind of wig you out and I love that too. <laughs> That's funny you said that. Um, my wife really likes Mulholland Drive and we watched that maybe a year ago and I actually hadn't seen it and after we watched it I was like okay well now we have to watch Perfect Blue because she uh -huh, hadn't seen that. Yes. Wow, um, that's so awesome. Th there are some interesting parallels there for sure. Um. I would obviously say track down Paranoia Agent, if you can, um, but something that's a lot easier to track down and is not animation is Sharp Objects, the HBO miniseries ah, yeah. that just aired. Yeah. I think it does a lot of similar things in terms of playing with your, your perspective. You're seeing a lot through the character's eyes and kind of how she interprets reality as a really strong female lead. It deals with a lot of difficult subject matter in, in you know, very delicate ways. Uh, and it's really intense and stressful in a good way. Freaking shook when I watched Mulholland Drive for the first time. I was like, that movie's insane. Yeah. 
Just the, the homeless dude. Dang. Yeah. That's insane. It's a cohort of similar themes. Uh, well, something I like to do is uh, open up the uh, discussion to questions. If anybody has any questions, uh, we can take a, a couple. If anybody has any like thoughts or like anything that stuck out to you or anything like that. Um, does anybody have any questions or comments? I have a question. What's is that up? weird? No. All right. So you guys, <laughs> um, obviously red is a really important color in this movie, right? Like yeah. the script she gets before she gets the rape scene is red. Um, Rumi wears a red dress at the end instead of her white dress, mm -hmm. her white idol dress. Um, yeah, the elevator floor is red when it has the boombox on it playing her like super loud song. So red is kind of always her room. It has a lot of red walls. Red's when always she kind encounters of Mima's room for the first time, right on the Mac, isn't there a red background? Yeah, I think there is. Like yeah, that? I mean her eyes kind of her pop idol visage eyes turn red. You know mm -hmm. when she's looking in the reflection. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So. At the end of this movie, she looks up in the rearview mirror and she says, like, I'm the real Mima. And Adam was telling me in the Japanese version of this, the voice actress who delivers that line is actually Rumi's voice actress. Oh, So my. it's kind of like a final stinger. Huh. Also, Shook. my question for you is, she gets in a red car at the end before she drives off. So do you think there's some symbolism there? I feel like I was robbed by not having that ending. That's I feel, insane. I feel robbed, actually. Wow. No, but I just, just like that so much better because I do insane. like the idea that she's self-actualized, you know, that there's some hope for a new day, but like as it as the text of the film that we watch stands, she like it so tonally feels a similar to like she gets in a car and she's like, I'm the real Mima, huh? And then it has that music cue and then it cuts <laughs> to credits. I'm like, what was that? Like, did yeah. I just get punked? Like, <laughs> it was like, shoe, like, felt like it was like shoehorned in. Yeah, something. it felt like it she it should have it should have ended with them both maybe dying on the road, looking at the sky, and it's like, oh, they're free. You know, that's it was like okay, but I mean, but I love that man. That's oh, insane. I'm oh, it's okay. Whoa. The top's still spinning. Yes, the <laughs> top is still spinning. <laughs> yes, that's oh man, that does like hearing that. That does. I didn't know for me. that. That's why I love having y'all on because I, I actually don't really know anything I've about it. I've never anime. noticed that. <laughs> and I've only seen it in, as a, a sub previously, but I never realized there was a different. Jeez. Even it's just crazy. the car, this is kind of hammy, but you could kind of interpret that as violence being her vehicle of self actualization. Mm. Right? Dang. That's what's up. Shook. Love it. Oh, Jackie has a question. Wait till I get there, Jackie. Hang on. Woo! About busted ass. So Daniel and I actually argued quite a bit about who killed who um, oh. and whether or not that even mattered. And even if it doesn't matter, I still want to know. So uh, for somebody who's seen it multiple times, who do you think killed who? Because we argued about whether or not it was um, the stalker character being manipulated by Rumi to do it or whether or not she actually did it herself. Um, and I'm honestly really curious about it because I feel like it I don't know just peel some layers back on Rumi also who killed the fish wasn't that <laughs> did the fish did actually die? die are they yeah. just different fish they were, yeah I don't know the fish but, is us as the audience oh, oh yeah yeah because I was dead 
yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm going to help this one much because <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I couldn't really figure it out. I presume Mamania conducted a lot of the violence until he was insufficient at doing so. And then Rumi was just like, well, I guess I'm going to have to, I guess, kill him. And then, if you want a job done, you got to do it yourself. Yeah. But, but I have, I mean, I have, I have no idea. I want to say Rumi. But then again, like, I don't, what was her consequence at the end? I guess she was, well, no, there was a pretty severe consequence. She's probably going to be forever uh, institutionalized, essentially. So that is pretty bad. Never mind. I was going to say she didn't have much of a consequence for <laughs> I mean, yeah, she's, she's alive, alive at the end. She is alive. Unlike a lot yeah, of people. Mamania but, uh, did not live. <laughs> but I don't think he, li- yeah, no, he, he definitely died. I don't know. This film really fucks with you. <laughs> I yeah, guess. It, it's that whole crazy perspective thing again. Um, I think probably Mamania, like when he, when the pizza delivery person shows up, right? And mm-hmm. he's the guy's like, you're pretty weird for a pizza boy or something. So mm-hmm. it, it leads you to believe that even though we're seeing a woman, it's probably a guy. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense. I mean, especially, wasn't it before that, the scene where all the published photographs were out and he was collecting the magazines and, and returning yeah. them to the distributor? It, you know, it would make sense that, but but then again, I mean, obviously the goading of, of Rumi as Mima, pop Mima, you know, played a hand in that. Yeah, I mean, about halfway through, I'm like, man, I think Mima's just actually killing everybody. <laughs> like, <laughs> just like fuck all this, I'm just going to kill my agent, I'm just going to kill everybody, because I shouldn't have done that. She just went scorched the earth on him. Yeah, that's kind of how I was like, I yeah, that's where the whole, the rabbit hole I went, but I kind of agree. And then it has that great fake-out twist where you think, okay, maybe, you know, this is a real doctor and these are real detectives. Oh, God. And this is all, like, that, in her head. I was, I was that like, got wait, I'm confused. hard and I loved it. Is this well, actually a movie or not? Yeah, I wonder, did they, like, take, were they trying to just kind of play with I guess the meta narrative on what is it, double blind or something like the, the the double bind? Excuse me. Like, were they trying to, I guess, use Mima's pre-existing, I guess, fame or celebrity to leverage the character? Was that it? So she like, I would have to think so. Yeah. Or not? I have no idea. We're talking ourselves in circles. I don't know. I know this mm-hmm. is going to go on for a while. Who done it? The. Uh, oh. Yeah, I mean, Caleb Masters in the cheesy. Got a quest cheesy. Uh, yeah, you guys touched on it a little bit, kind of about how this film t- touches on the evil uses of the internet before the internet was a huge deal. Um, but uh, one thing I that I noticed, especially in the light of um, uh, post Gamergate, post twenty sixteen election, the whole faux identity thing, is how the film I think is actually really on point about the the talk to- the potential toxicity of fan culture. And I wanted to see what you guys thought about that and how you, I mean, what was your take on how the super fan reacted? Um, or do you think that was uh, something Cone latched on to early on? Uh, or is that just something that's always existed with fans since like the beginning of fandoms? Yeah, that's really interesting. There's actually a, it's a video essay. You can find it on YouTube by a, a guy, Beyond Ghibli. Oh, I thought it was going to be Super Eye Patch. Super Eye Patch Wolf. Wolf is really good too, but he his is pretty, pretty broad. Um, but he still approaches a lot of important aspects of Perfect Blue. But no, there's a, a gentleman by Beyond uh, Ghibli who has a video called Idol, which is just about predominantly Perfect Blue, but about the culture in the indus- or the industry, I should say, built around uh, idolization. 
and how in in Japan, especially around Cohn's time, it was um, you know a bit differently. There was a lot of you know, despite these uh, a lot of these women not really having the. I think when we think of a celebrity or something in in, in America, we think of somebody who also is probably in part a little bit guarded, as well. Mima does not have privilege to that protection that that celebrity might bring. There's not the 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 veil of fame. There's not the the financial boon, the monetary boon that could perhaps maybe help, you know, establish shields for you. And even those are can prove ineffective in a lot of ways. Um, but it's 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 very interesting. You're right because none at the at the start of the film there's I think we see one child maybe and he was there for the Power Rangers thing, and then he um you know that quickly left and then it is it is all men in the audience. It's all men who's talking about you know what Mima is the 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 you know the what was it UMD or something. I thought I heard that. Is that what I guess the, the little PSP cartridges? The, Right, yeah, they were talking about those and and something about Mima specifically. It's, I mean, I think maybe that was a catalyst in part for this film. I think it had to be, and that there is a bit of a of, of an obsession that can build from that. Whether or not it's going to yield Mamania, I don't know. Really, another uh, historical point, inadvertently, around the same time this film was being made, um, Cohen caught wind of, I, I believe it was Bjork, who, when she was just at the rise yep. of her fame, she was there was a, a gentleman who attempted to, um, you know, he started creating video, I guess, preemptive vlogs about, you know, how he was basically going to. He was so obsessed with Bjork, he was going to to meet, kill himself and her simultaneously. Yeah, and murder, he murder suicide, but yeah, yeah, but well, like remotely with her or something. And they fortunately intercepted the package. Uh, it was a bomb, I think, or something to that effect. He had timed it out to where he was going to send it to her, and he was going to kill her. And yeah, he, record he his himself. own death at the same time. Yeah. He he did his, uh, but but fortunately hers was intercepted, and nobody was harmed from the package he sent. But it's 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 so weird. It, you know, you wonder like, is that you know? I mean, inevitably, maybe something like this will will yield that kind of individuality, how to disengage that and prevent that. I'm not really sure what, what would be the appropriate way, and I'm not sure how Cohn addresses it directly other than it's maybe a little bit crazy. I mean, Mamania, he suffers from a, a mania of sorts that yeah. you know cascades into something violent. The idea of mental illness, I think, is another big aspect. Like, I don't know, you think back to the guy that killed John Lennon, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, had a book. What was it? The Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. Like what the heck, dude? Like <laughs> that's so. And but it, you know, it's it's mental illness. Like he, yeah. Like we don't think that way. Like uh, whenever you're not suffering from it, like you wouldn't think in that way. But it's just it's an it's an interesting take on, you know, pe- some people just get obsessed to this point to where like they will lash out in different ways, and it's just, you know, I think that's just showing that. This was one way that this guy was like, you know, obsessed and was lashing out. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? No. It, thanks. Uh, oh, what? Why is it called Perfect Blue? That's not actually the full the title too of it. Original, not the film, but the. I think it's derived from a manga that's like Perfect Blue. The something of a. It, it, it's like the rise or descent of a star. I cannot remember, but there's a subtitle to the manga. I'm trying to think of what it is. I wish I knew it 
off the top of my head. But I don't know. It would be very interesting to Brett's point how red is such a prominent force, mm -hmm. um, blue being the you know essentially the antithesis. It's I don't know. It's just it's a red herring. Yeah. Well, I, th I think <laughs> blue is a color of happiness in Japanese Maybe culture. Serenity, too. So I think yeah. it's kind of like a very sarcastic title. Right. Like perfect happiness, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I can mean, see the that doing would, that. That kind of like gives credence to my potential alternate ending where, you know, they get hit by the car or they're knocked aside by the car and they're looking up at the sky, sky and it's just yeah. a blue sky and there's no red in the frame. And then they die. No, they don't die. Um, but yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I I don't know. There, I think that there is a really important aspect of the imagery there. It seems like she takes solace in a lot of blue objects, but then, you know, that color continually decreases from the palette of the film mm -hmm. as time elapses. Yeah, not until that summer sky kind of at the very end. You're right. Yeah, it's that big release. Well, thanks, everybody, for uh, sticking around. Um, why don't you guys uh, tell everyone where they can follow your projects or keep up with you on social don't media? Don't follow me. Now that we're, yeah. Stop. <laughs> That's Not kind allowed. of a weird place for plugs, but uh, okay. <laughs> it's a weird place. Where can I follow you, Daniel? No. Uh, you can follow. <laughs> <laughs> you may follow me. at um, <laughs> uh, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you fancy, but more specifically, the Cinematropolis producing a lot of work there. I wrote an essay on Perfect Blue recently. Definitely check that out. Yeah, I'd appreciate it. But also, the um, uh, one of our writers, uh, Christopher Schultz, did a piece on one of my favorite kinds of films for, for superficial reasons. But but still, he made a really good piece that made them way more uh, uh, sincere in any argument that I could probably construct, which is why anthology films are, you know, why they resonate with us, specifically horror anthologies. Uh, you can find me at the Oklahoma Gazette, well, not there physically, but in the paper every now and again. <laughs> and then also uh, uh, World Literature Today, about once every other month. Sweet. You can find me on Twitter at Alex B. Brohannon, B-R-O-H-A-N-N-O-N. You can also find me on thecinematropolis.com. We podcast, we talk movies, I tweet silly things. Um, that's about it. And if you're a fan of film, the cinematic schematic. Yes, thank you. Is the Cinematropolis's uh, Pod. monthly podcast. Yes. They do deep uh, dive film analysis. More, it's more uh, not like the uh, did we like it, did we not like it. It's more of like you know what's really making this film tick and these. That's right. Know, things like that. So. And we're also going to be rolling out an interview series on on soundtrack where we're going to interview. Um, some film, TV, video game composers. Count me in for that. Ooh, yes. We've got some very exciting guests. Uh, you can find Robot House stuff at robothouse.store. You can see our prints there. You can find links to our Facebook and Instagram, uh, sign up for our mailing list and everything like that. If you want to find me personally, I'm at Whole Foods about once a week on Saturday or Sunday. You can see what <laughs> kind of milk I buy. With the cow oh, on shit. it. Oh, right? <laughs> I thought you you were that about to say food? you just like worked there. No, 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 like, no, no. That's, that's where I mean, shop. It's you know. just like my shopping. The, the cow yes. branded ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those the, in the brown eggs. And then I have a puppy, so we're at Hollywood Feed if you want to find me there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Don't. Please don't. <laughs> um, well, if you want to find the podcast, you can always find it on social media. That's Tunes Tunes Podcast, T-U-N-E-S slash 
T-O-O-N-S. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then you can listen to us on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your fine podcasts. Thanks again for sticking around, everybody. And thanks to these guys for uh, talking about the movie. Thank, Thank you. you, guys. Thanks.